We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. Today we ask, how can we ensure emerging markets aren't left behind? We all know that climate change is a global challenge. Tackling it requires a global transition from fossil fuels to cleaner energy sources. And there's a huge amount of talk about how developed countries can make that switch. However, developing countries are often missing from this discussion. Even though many will be hit hardest by climate change, this really doesn't make any sense. By 2050, half of global energy capacity will be in non-OECD countries, which means we cannot afford to ignore them. In addition, research from Oxford University shows that major emerging economies, China, India and Brazil, are more vulnerable to rising global temperatures than their developed peers. So what can be done? This time, I'm delighted to be joined by Rail McNally, a founding member of BlackRock Infrastructure, a senior investor and portfolio manager in their global renewable power group. Rail helped to establish BlackRock's infrastructure division, where he has helped grow their clean power and infrastructure franchise to over 9 billion assets under management. He also helped to establish their global infrastructure debt business, and he is now the lead portfolio manager for the Climate Finance Partnership, an innovative clean energy and infrastructure strategy focused on emerging markets. Hello, Rail. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, Natasha, and thank you for having me here today. So let's kick off with a nice easy one because we've got some big issues to tackle here. So, um, Rail, how long have you worked in renewables? I've been, a, I've been a principal investor in the space for about 13 years, 10 of which has been at BlackRock within the Global Renewable Power Group. Um, before that, I worked at an international private equity group focused on f- investing in areas of infrastructural deficit, but who are early movers in both clean power and the circular economy. Prior to that, I worked at KPMG in their corporate finance and M&A practice, where that private equity firm was actually a client. Lots of experience then. So what's, what does your role involve in BlackRock? Yeah, the role, the role spans capital formation for our funds at a high level down to you know, responsibility for originating investment opportunities, establishing industry partnerships, leading transaction execution, portfolio management for our funds, and developing new investment strategies in the renewable power and clean infrastructure space. Over the years, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in several of the organic platform expansion opportunities, some of which you referenced, um, and the most re- recent of which is obviously the Climate Finance Partnership that I'm really excited to be here to, to talk to you today about. Yeah, we've heard a lot in the press about the Climate Finance Partnership. So why don't we kick off with that? Um, could you explain to our listeners more about um, its formation and what it's seeking to achieve? 
Sure, sure. Happy to. Uh, the, the CFP, as we call it, the Climate Finance Partnership, is a collaborative effort between BlackRock and several leading international development institutions, so KFW, AFD, Proparco, and JBIC, um, so Germany, France, and, and Japan's development agencies, respectively, as well as a number of foundations you know, that are really seeking in this vehicle to bring the best of public and private capital and capabilities together um, through an innovative fund structure that we, we hope will help crowd institutional capital into the emerging market clean energy and infrastructure opportunity. So with the CFP, what we've tried to create is a blended finance structure that seeks to help de-risk the investment opportunity in emerging markets by helping enable and um, pr provide OECD-like risk returns for institutional investors alongside this access to the fastest growing infrastructure segments and markets of the next 30 years. The attraction of emerging markets is that they offer fundamental-led demand growth you know, driven by the pillars of population, economic growth, urbanization, and rising middle classes. So for those reasons, we're particularly interested in, in the opportunity set that we're here to discuss today. Great. Okay, well, look, there's um, a lot to discuss looking at. It's it's a really broad area, isn't it? So emerging markets, we do tend to generalize um, um, in our approach to them. So would you maybe, is it is it possible to have a sort of general investment strategy across all emerging markets? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think some things about the asset class in the sector will hold true across markets and regions, but infrastructure that's inherently local, a good infrastructure investment starts and ends with good community and stakeholder engagement. And we've spent significant time and with our partners screening the universe of potential markets to try and create a framework that enables us to consider relative risk and return. And, you know, and we've ended up essentially targeting lower and upper middle income markets with strong enabling environments for clean energy and infrastructure. We've really sought to prioritize markets where the fundamentals uh, are strong, like strong legal and regulatory frameworks that are supportive of investment generally. We also want you know, some level of experience developing, managing, and supporting these assets and you know, where there's scale and scope to deploy capital and, and deliver on growth for our investors. It's clearly essential, isn't it, that investments need to happen um, in non-OECD countries. Do, do you really think? Um, do you really think they can catch up, or do you think there is a significant real risk of them falling behind in the energy transition? Yeah, it's a bit of a catch twenty-two for many of these markets. Historically, the cheapest and easiest form of generation to to install or add has been large thermal assets, and as a result, the bulk of emissions. Um, globally, almost 80%, we think, in the decades to come are expected to come from developing countries. You know, and most of humanity and, you know, the population globally lives in these middle and low income countries. So the economic impact is disproportionately concentrated there. If developed nations don't lead the way here, the transition simply can't happen, given, given the disproportionate allocation of, of wealth. You know, I think clean energy is now cost competitive on a levelized basis, which, you know, when you consider the modularity of the asset class, the simplicity of installation makes a really compelling proposition for us as an investor group to, to, to believe in the accelerated transition um, to a low carbon economy in these markets and, and building kind of the electrical system of the future that, that doesn't have the legacy encumbrances of vested economic interests or, or old kind of outdated uh, rate-based infrastructure. 
the need's absolutely clear. Uh, and I'm sure there isn't anyone listening to that to our podcast who doesn't see the, the need for developing countries to participate in the energy transition. Otherwise, we're just not going to achieve our goals. Um, but how does that need then manifest in your, uh, you know, in the, in the investment side and the investment criteria uh, and what BlackRock's seeking to achieve? Yeah, to, to your earlier question, you know, the opportunity and experience will vary by region. CFP focuses you know, globally, so across Asia Pacific, Central and Latin America, as well as having a minimum 25% allocation to the continent of Africa. And each region and each country present some version of the fundamentals that I mentioned above, but but each is at a different stage on their respective journeys. So the, the investable universe differs. Uh, it is growing in all cases, but but we need to be pragmatic in what we can achieve and how we attract and attack these markets. Um, we're going to target investments, as we've stated, in clean generation, which for us is primarily wind and solar or solar plus storage, transmission and distribution, as well as other sectors such as the electrification of transport and EV infrastructure. I think on the investment side, the, the most efficient way for us to do that, uh, apart from working with our existing catalytic partners uh, and you know, given their boots on the ground and, and long track record in these markets, is to partner with or invest in platforms and management teams um, that provide that strong local connectivity and influence. You know, it needs to be a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I think your um, the point comes back again about that the need for that local presence and partnering with local management teams. Um, is that one of the key reasons? Do you see different types of investors um, going into these markets and different sorts of partnerships needed in order to, to, to successfully invest in these markets? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and that really is what the Climate Finance Partnership is all about, to provide access to and to help demystify these markets and these investment opportunities alongside some of the most experienced global investors in this space. You know, for many institutional investors, the non-OECD portion of a, a large generalist infrastructure fund is typically not more than 10%. But given the disproportionate growth in capital needs in these non-OECD markets, something needs to fundamentally change for the infrastructure institutional investor universe. That could include things like regulatory or capital charge treatments for investments. You know, but it also really requires people starting to invest and, and gaining that comfort that the markets are real, robust and reliable. Um, you know, infrastructure is inherently attractive because of the low correlation to public markets, high cash yield, resilience and downturns. But the key thing is really the expectation of a narrow standard deviation of investment outcomes. And it's that last point that's holding investors back, I, I believe, from emerging markets. And that's the point that we hope to overcome with our catalytic tranche in the Climate Finance Partnership in the hope that you know, CFP3 won't need that catalytic money. I think it's really interesting what you, you, you mentioned, you know, for these markets to be successful and for you to be successful, um, it, they need to be real. I think you said real, robust and reliable. Um, when you traditionally look at investing in these technologies, in renewable energy, in um, non-OECD countries, real, robust and reliable hasn't necessarily been three words that spring to, to my mind in some of the transactions. They've taken a huge amount of time um, to get over the line. Um, do you think if you look at some of the issues, so you've got uh, bankability of PPAs, uh, uncertain legal systems, political uncertainty, uh, issues now with supply chains post-COVID as well, do you think, uh, sorry to be it sound a bit negative, but do you think we can get over all those issues now and, and get to the point where, you know, investments will be real, robust and reliable? 
I think that you know on on kind of those, those three points, it's it's really about market selection, um, and that's where we obviously spent a huge amount of our time. We don't and can't, as an institutional and financial investor, you know, non philanthropic investor take those very early stage market risks where there's no kind of sense of momentum in a market. Um, you know, I, th- I think in the markets that we are targeting, it's still not easy for, for investors in large organizations to, you know, to stick their neck out and do something different to the herd or advocate for a strategy or idea like this that requires potentially extra work or effort to get it over the line. You know, you, institutional inertia is a real thing. Uh, you know, if, if it goes right, people won't remember you. If it goes wrong, I'm sure they will. So, you know, I'd say it's a, it's a little bit of all those points that you've that you've raised. But I think the key point is not all emerging markets or investments are created equal. And that's why we believe the partnership with the DFIs is a real differentiator here in that they can help us navigate that reality. You know, they've had boots on the ground going back decades um, in, in more than 80 countries apiece, I think. Um, so you know, this is not a frontier market fund. It's not a philanthropic venture. What we're trying to do here is, is target markets and investments that we believe can provide attractive risk-adjusted returns for our investors, you know, and, and really prove the thesis and then rinse and repeat. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think having the DFIs um, along with you on this journey, um, you know, they've they've gone through this process. They've banked a number of projects in a number of sectors across a variety of countries. So uh, they definitely have the experience to get over some of these issues that we discussed. Okay, so um, we've talked a little bit about some of the some of the risks that these projects face and what we're trying to achieve. So maybe um, let's let's turn to a more sort of positive approach and look at uh, the collaboration you mentioned that's needed and how can investors best work with companies in emerging markets? You mentioned you know having to have that close relationship with the local management. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So so in my experience, you know, the right strategy. And this, this applies in OECD markets too, but involves leveraging relationships and partnerships to create that pseudo local presence. Um, but it needs to fit specific investable opportunities rather than target, you know, in individual countries or, or kind of a narrower subset. You know, the, the reason this approach works is it allows us to kind of search out that best relative value um, while avoiding that kind of level of concentration in a single market because you know they're the they're the portfolio effects that we're trying to 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 prevent and mitigate both with our structure but also with you know the market selection exercise that we've gone through you know i, I think i and, and the platform are believers and experienced teams that have that in combination you know give us greater reach so whether they're international or local or a combination of both um i think you really need both for it to be successful but for for a success uh, you know, really it's about the complementary skills that we can bring to the table. So, you know, as an investor, we need to develop a strategy for the region that leverages our core capabilities and then find the right partners for whom that's a really complementary um, additive input. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about your strategy and the approach? Um, go into a little bit more detail. I'm not sure if you're allowed or not. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Um, so, so, we're looking for sophisticated local players and platforms that have deep connections to their markets, you know, where we can supplement their capabilities in a constructive way. So, so you know, as an investor, we need to bring value beyond dollars. I think that's really important here. For us, that's things like sector expertise, financing capability, and I think reach. You know, that could be access to OEMs, other market participants, um, 
you know, it's really about bringing all you know, the, the experience, all the scars on our back to bear on these opportunities. And, and, you know, how do we then put that together in a, in a harmonious relationship that can benefit and deliver for both sets of stakeholders, the local partners and obviously our investor base. Um, are you able to tell us anything about some of the projects that you're looking at for Climate Finance Partnership? Yeah, I, I can't really speak in detail to the specific live opportunities, but but I can say that, you know, from a sector and regional focus, we're seeing a huge amount of attractive investable opportunities in our target markets. We expect to start investing dollars at the end of this year. Um, once we reach $500 million in commitments in the, the ratio of four to one of institutional to catalytic money, um, you know, I, I kind of outlined the, the regional focus that we have, but, you know, the investments themselves were principally com- assets and businesses that encompass generation delivery of clean power with that core focus on renewable power generation, but also allocations to the, the supporting infrastructures such as energy storage, distribution, um, energy efficiency opportunities or electrified transport. So that's really the, the focus. And we've been you know, excited by what we've been able to achieve with our existing relationships globally. It's how we've grown our franchise and how we've entered you know, new markets, um, and we see that trend continuing for the CFP. So there's a big emphasis on the, you know, the local side. And as you've mentioned the earlier, the good community and stakeholder engagement. So I, I'm assuming that the sort of cultural side also and the values is an inherent part of what you're working on as well. Yeah, no, absolutely essential. Um, you know, something that's, so, you know, we talk about nimbyism here, not in my backyard, but as something you know as long dated as infrastructure it's really essential to make and have the right stakeholder engagement community engagement federal supports and programs you know up front they're crucial to the success of any project be it emerging market or not and then obviously each emerging market will have its own unique cultural idiosyncrasies and, and investors we bring the capital development expertise international relationships you know hopefully best practices but we're looking to our global and local development partners to bring the local knowledge and give that access to and then boots on the ground uh, coverage for, for the local communities and stakeholders. And you know, to the prior comment, the ability to weave these skill sets together will be the difference between success and failure. Um, and it's obviously been a big focus for our catalytic partners and where we've spent a huge amount of time um, developing our environmental, social and governance approach to underwriting, investing and operating these assets. Um, which is actually something we'll we'll publicly report on uh, as part of this fund once it's up and running. I um I'll be interested in reading that when that comes out. Um, one of the issues you often get in emerging markets and developing countries is the supply chain and the extent to which you're going to try and localize that. Clearly, we've got supply chain issues now across, you know, not just infrastructure but across a huge amount of industries um, post COVID. Um, are you intending to sort of build a, a more local-based supply chain, or well, are you able to tell us a little bit more about that? Frankly, I, I don't control the supply chain, <laughs> so uh, so while it's a nice uh, objective, you know, I, I think most of the future increase we're going to see is in the global south. Um, for all the fundamental-led reasons we, we identified, uh, the technologies are incredibly cost-competitive down there, but. But whether or not it's possible to build local supply chains in all of these markets and countries, it seems quite unlikely just given the scale and scope involved and you know, the geographic spread and reach. Um, you know, the, the projects and investments should create you know, measurable positive impacts for the communities nonetheless. But 
you know, building a local supply chain um, is a very challenging thing to do. And it, what it needs really is momentum in a market. It needs to see that momentum. It needs to see the capital flows. And when that starts to happen, the supply chain will come. But it's very hard to build the supply chain, you know, ahead of time. Yeah, um, understood. I'd like to um, delve a little bit deeper, if we can, into um, the outcomes of your investments in these regions or what you're seeking to achieve um, and the values behind that. Do you think that your investments will help close the wealth gap that we see, see between these countries and the more developed peers? Yeah, absolutely. Look, a just transition, uh, you know, toward a more sustainable economy can definitely help close the, the wealth gap between OECD and non-OECD countries. You know, working together, we can reduce the climate, you know, impact on the most disadvantaged while also creating, you know, expanding investment opportunities for the private sector. So, I think it's pretty symbiotic. You know, clean, affordable power and access to reliable electrical supply has obviously got you know the potential to massively improve quality of life for for a huge portion of the world's population. Um, the International Energy Authority, or IEA, um, you know, to said that to reach net zero by 2050, annual clean energy investment will need to more than triple by 2030 to around four to five trillion dollars. So this obviously will create you know millions of new jobs, significantly lift global economic growth, and could deliver hopefully universal access to electricity by the end of the decade. I'm really quite interested to get your view on um, which countries you think will be the most receptive and, you know, uh, where your strategy is going to work the best initially, do you think? Uh, Are you able to give us any insight into where you think those countries will be initially? Yeah, and this is an area that we've obviously spent a lot of time, you know, with our partners, our risk and quantitative analysis team, uh, focusing and screening um, to help identify what we think are kind of strong baseline markets to help build the portfolio from. So that's, you know, in, in Asia Pacific, that could be places like Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia. Um, for Africa, it could be, you know, Northwestern Africa, Northeastern Africa or South Africa. You have places like Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco. Um, and then in Latin America, Colombia and Peru kind of jump out. But, you know, the Central American markets and the islands equally have some pretty interesting fundamentals that that make the addition of clean power pretty compelling. So, you know, while we've refined it to target markets, we will continue to look to be opportunistic in kind of those, again, the lower middle and upper middle income countries where the right growth opportunity and framework exists. Exciting jurisdictions. Um, before maybe we wrap up and look at where, what, what your view is in the future, um, are you able to give us any insight as to the, the technologies you think are going to be most successful? Is it likely to be um, sort of tried and tested technology, onshore wind and solar, or do you think you'll be looking at more innovative technologies? It, it's primarily focused on the the tried and tested. You know, there's enough. I think we're asking investors to stretch, you know, to come to these markets and yeah, you do want investors, don't you? <laughs> so, so it's uh, you know, don't let the the perfect be the enemy of the good. So we'll try and stick to the the more middle of the fairway stuff that you'd expect. In the, in the asset class and the technology. Fair enough. That's a really useful insight on the regions and technology. So thank you for that. Okay. Why don't we now sort of look forward? Um, what do you think are the biggest changes you'd expect to see um, for the energy sector by 2030? So it's not not that much of a crystal ball exercise, is it? Yeah. Look, at the, I think the energy sector has probably seen more rapid change in the last 10 years than the previous 50. So I'm sure I'll, whatever I say now, I'll get wrong. 
But, you know, I, I can say with confidence that it's cheaper to build new renewables than it is to operating existing coal and gas plants in, in many countries. And, you know, that includes China, India and, and lots of Europe. Um, we're seeing battery energy storage become viable, you know, cost efficient. And, and what it can, it can just perform a myriad of things from helping integrate kind of variable generation into the grids, managing grid congestion, curtailment, power shifting from when it's generated to when it's needed, and really just provide overall grid quality and stability. I think those additions um, and the, you know, the wide range of potential applications there is, is hugely positive for the, the increased penetration of renewables globally, but in emerging markets also. And I think you know, we're seeing positive technological advancements in nuclear. Um, and while I think you know everything through 2030 is likely to come from technologies that exist and potentially just new applications of those technologies, I think we should you know assume and expect that you know, continued innovation is is coming. There's obviously a, a strong federal push in that area, be it green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, um, you know, even more on the nuclear side. But I do you know. So I, I think there's a lot to come, but I do think you know, even as consumers, there's some pretty basic things we can do to help alleviate you know, the problem, both by changing our usage and our consumption patterns of, of power. And what do you think for 2050 then? Do you think you'll see, we'll see a fundamental overhaul of our energy system? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think by then we will start to see the emergence of new technologies. I think you know, emerging markets will skip ahead to more flexible, real-time power markets that that deal and scale with their needs, um, hopefully with generation closer to load and more clean generation. Um, but I do think you know, thirty years is is such a long time, um, and what you know, the 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 S curve of adoption and everything else in in technology just keeps getting truncated. I think it was fifty years for the landline telephone to reach fifty percent adoption, and it was a little over five. For the mobile phone and i think we should expect that kind of trend and dynamic to continue as we think about this shift given that you know, the magnitude of of capital and, and federal support and focus on kind of facilitating this transition to a low carbon economy and do you think we can narrow that gap um, for the energy transition between um oecd and non-oecd countries then yeah i i think i'd say if we don't act now it's going to continue to broaden and widen. And I think, you know, we need to find innovative ways or creative ways to leverage public finances to support private investment, because if there is not enough public capital to go around, you know, after years and years of quantitative easing, there's, there's a significant wall of private capital looking for yield, looking for good investment opportunities. Um, so what we, you know, what we think matters and what we're trying to do through the CFP is, is partner with those big international public financial institutions to leverage their experience and capability in a, in a structured way that can help mitigate the idiosyncratic risks existing in these emerging markets um, and support that low carbon transition. You know, with those, with those parties leveraging their capabilities to mitigate risk, you know, providing the benefit of their experience, helping to reduce the, the domestic costs of financing as well. You know, hopefully we can attract the necessary private capital to, to demonstrate the potential in these markets and then, you know, deliver on, do what it says in the tin and, and deliver the right returns and, and really prove the concept to the institutional investor universe. I really hope um, to see this being successful. So, and I'm sure it will be. Um, we ask all our guests uh, a final question. Um, and that question is, are you hopeful for the future, Rail? 
I'm I'm rarely accused of being an optimist, but but on this one, obviously, yeah, very very optimistic and and hopeful. Look, I think our capacity to as, as humans to adapt and innovate is staggering, and I think what we're what we're starting to see and what we're living through is a fundamental reshaping of of finance um, with capital flows, ESG oriented strategies, especially climate oriented strategies, doubling in 2021. And while that momentum continues to build and get getting us towards where we need to be, we just have to remain vigilant on, on ensuring that that happens because the transition is not something that that any one person or country or body can achieve in isolation. It, it really does need to come from you know every corner of society. Um, so the role of private capital there is pivotal. Uh, climate risk and transition is going to impact every portfolio and everything we do across the board. And, you know, a just transition, which I referenced at the outset, is about responsible, rational investment. And I think we will increasingly see capital follow those companies who actually and actively look to move the dial. And, you know, at BlackRock, we've obviously committed significant resources to helping our investors successfully navigate the transition. But, you know, and with CFP, I'm, I'm personally excited to have played my part in it. Right. We're going to have to wrap up now, Rail, but thank you so much for your time. This has been um, really interesting. And I'm sure it's not only me who's going to be watching the Climate Finance Partnership um, success and journey along the way. And maybe if we're still doing these podcasts in a couple of years time, you can come back and uh, let us know how it's gone. I love that. Thanks, Natasha and team. So if the COVID crisis has taught us anything, it's that countries across the world must work together to solve global problems. But it's also shown that developed countries can race ahead to implement solutions while developing nations just fall further behind. The fact is that every country has a role to play in the global energy transition. And if companies don't provide investment to support projects in developing nations, then this crucial job will end up only half done. We cannot afford to let this happen. That just leaves me to say thanks for listening. Please catch us next time when we'll be discussing how can miners support a just transition? Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. Mm -hmm.